Good morning again. It is a, a joy to, to be with you all this morning. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. It'll be in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And we are turning our attention to the last and most well-known of Isaiah's servant songs, which we have been considering over the last few weeks. In the book of Acts, it is this passage from Isaiah that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when the Lord sent Philip to him. And then Philip then used this passage to explain the good news of Jesus to that Ethiopian eunuch. So let's consider this good news of Jesus Christ from Isaiah together. Please follow along as I start reading in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He did not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that it's these glorious words that it is truly well, because of these words, that it is well with our soul. Father, we pray that Jesus' sacrifice would be clear from these words. Father, that we would truly see that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced because of our rebellion. Father, we pray that we would behold the wonders of the gospel as we come to your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By all standards, Wilma Rudolph, Wilma Rudolph was an unexpected and surprising Olympic champion. She won three track and field gold medals at the 1960 Olympics, 
but this surely would have been a surprise to anyone who knew her as a young girl. You see, young Wilma was a sickly young lady. She suffered from double pneumonia, scarlet fever, measles, and then at age six, she was stricken by the terrible disease polio. In her battle with polio, she lost the use of her left leg and was told by doctors that she would never walk again. But at nine years old, after extensive therapy, she finally regained the use of her left leg and was able to remove the metal leg braces that she had worn for three years. After that, young Wilma made up for lost time and turned immediately to athletics and never looked back, eventually turning into an Olympic champion sprinter. But who could have foreseen that outcome in all those years when she could not even walk? It was a surprising reversal of everything that you might have expected if you had known her as a young girl. Now, brothers and sisters, read through the Bible and you will see that God often reverses human expectations. The Bible is full of surprises. God loves to show his wisdom by reversing the expectations of man. God loves to show his glory by triumphing in unexpected ways. Take Joseph, who was sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers, but whom God raised up to be second in command of all of Egypt and whom God then used to save his family and the people of God. Take David, the shepherd who was anointed to be king, though he was the youngest of his brothers. This was so unexpected that his father did not even have him present when the prophet Samuel showed up to anoint the next king. Take the apostle Paul. He began as the great persecutor of the church, but God turned him into the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Take the Christian life. God says it is the humble who will be exalted, the last who will be first, that if you want to save your life, you must lose it. Well, friends, God loves to turn human expectations upside down. And of course, we see this in the life of Jesus. The story of Christmas is itself surprising and unexpected. Who would think that God himself would come to earth? Who would expect the eternal son of God, the one who created all things and is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, Jesus, to be born in a lowly manger to a lowly woman? Who would expect Jesus to come and not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? Well, Jesus was not what Israel was expecting in their Savior and Messiah. And what was most surprising, what was most unexpected, what reversed all expectations is the way in which Jesus saved. Jesus redeemed Jesus redeems through sacrifice. He saves by his suffering and dying for the sins of his people on the cross. Brothers and sisters, that is what we see in our passage this morning from Isaiah. I have three points to help us consider that text from Isaiah that we just read. The first, and you can find this in the back of your bulletin, is the surprising servant. The surprising servant. We'll see that in Isaiah 52.13 through 53.3. Second, the suffering servant. That'll be verses 4 through 9 of Isaiah 53. And then third and finally, the successful servant. That'll be verses 10 through 12. 
But first, we want to see this idea that Jesus is a surprising servant. Look again at Isaiah 52.13. Right from the very beginning, Isaiah announces the servant's success. So remember, we've thought about who this servant is over the last three weeks. This servant of the Lord is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. So in Isaiah 52.13, right from the very beginning, the servant's success is announced. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. He will triumph. This is what we would expect from the Messiah. This sounds like a savior. This is what we would expect of the great servant of the Lord. But immediately after this verse, things take an unexpected and a surprising turn. The verses that follow certainly do not sound like someone who is greatly exalted. The success that was just announced seems to be put into great doubt. I just look at verse 14. The great servant of the Lord, the one who will be raised and lifted up, does not look so inspiring. Instead, this is what is said about him. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. Brothers and sisters, I believe this is the perspective from the cross. It gives us a a picture of the great suffering that Jesus endured. He was so beaten and bruised that that he was hardly recognizable. Friends, people tend to turn away from this kind of suffering. It is appalling. I don't know if any of you are, are like me, but I get that slightly nauseous feeling. I just feel a little bit sick when I see a bad injury. When my son Seth broke his arm a few weeks ago and it started to get all bruised and swollen, it looked misshapen, I did not want to look. I wanted to turn away. If a a movie or a TV show shows a broken bone or another bad injury, I I usually turn away from the TV. I shut my eyes. I don't like that stuff. My wife is the nurse, not me. Well, in a similar way, the suffering of Jesus led many to recoil from him. And who wants to follow someone like that? We want to, to turn away instead. During his time on earth, Jesus was not high and lifted up or exalted. Instead, he was despised and he was rejected. And his rejection climaxed at the cross. Who could believe that this man who was constantly rejected and who at the end was left hanging, bloodied and bruised on a Roman cross could really be God's chosen instrument of salvation? And yet we find something surprising in verse 15. Through his disfigurement and suffering, so he will sprinkle many nations. Well, the idea of sprinkling is communicating the idea of being made clean. The people of of Israel were made clean and acceptable before God when the blood of animal sacrifices were sprinkled over them. We saw this in Exodus a few weeks back. And so... What we see here is that it was precisely through his suffering that Jesus would save. It is through the sprinkling of Jesus' blood that the people of the world are made clean. We can only come into God's presence if we have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. This is what happens when we repent and believe. But look at Isaiah's question in Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord, meaning God's saving power, the arm of the Lord, God's saving power, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who 
could possibly believe this message? Who would possibly believe that this one who is so disfigured is the one through whom God's saving power would be revealed? To the mind of man, to the unredeemed human minds that have been darkened by sin, this message is foolishness. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. To humans lost in their sin, to unredeemed people, the message of the cross seems like foolishness. It seems foolish to believe the one who suffered so cruelly could be king of kings and lord of lords. It seems foolish to believe that this is the way that God would choose to save. It reverses all human wisdom and expectations. But friends, that is precisely the point. To follow King Jesus, you must reject human wisdom as well. You don't have to leave your intellect behind. That's not what we're talking about. But you have to reject human wisdom. You must humble yourself, not make yourself great. You must deny yourself and lose your life that you might save it. Christianity is not a religion of the great and powerful, but of the meek and of the humble. God chose to save in a way that would put to shame all human wisdom and understanding. He chose to save in a way that would reverse all human expectations and bring him all glory. One day, kings will shut their mouths because of Jesus. The great people of the world will be stunned into silence as the one they turned away from is revealed as the king of glory. This happens even now, every time someone repents and believes. They shut their mouths because they realize what they thought is not true. They must submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But friends, the answer to Isaiah's question from verse 1 is that left to ourselves, left to ourselves, not a single one of us would believe this message. Left to ourselves, no, not one of us would willingly follow Jesus and believe in him. For those of you who are here this morning and are Christians, you would not have believed this message if it had not been supernaturally revealed to you by God himself. Christian, you did not believe because you were wiser or smarter than others. Because you somehow see what everybody else cannot see because you are wise. No, you were once perishing. We are all sinners. We were all once perishing. The message of the cross was once foolishness to you too. You were once just as appalled at Jesus as everyone else. You needed God to reveal himself to you. You needed your eyes to be opened. You needed your mind to be supernaturally renewed. You needed your expectations and your understanding reversed. You needed to be humbled and brought to faith. Friends, Jesus defies all human expectations. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. It seems as if there was nothing about Jesus' earthly appearance that was particularly impressive. He was just like a small root out of dry ground. 
Looks like one of those desert roots that looks like it's going to wither away. He did not have an impressive form or majesty that would make people naturally follow him or desire him. In his book, Blink, Malcolm Gladwell, the author, writes this. In the United States population, about 14.5% of all men are six feet or taller, so not a lot. But among CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, some of the largest companies in the world, that number is 58%. Malcolm Gladwell shares that statistic to make the point that people, at least in the United States, favor those who are tall. We want our leaders to be tall. We want them to be strong. And so it ends up that tall people have a much better chance of becoming a CEO. But it's not just the United States. Our world values appearances. Maybe your culture doesn't value height, but it values something. All the superheroes in the movies are impressive figures. They're muscular and strong like Thor or Captain America or Hulk. Uh, The message is that these are people that you can follow. These are people who are strong enough to save. But from a human perspective, that's not what Jesus was like. Those paintings of Jesus that show his face glowing and him looking like some sort of male supermodel, those are probably not very accurate. Jesus was not like King Saul or, or Samson, who seemed very handsome and powerful by appearance. It seemed that Jesus had an ordinary and unimpressive appearance. What Jesus was characterized by was humility and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Friends, Jesus was characterized by the fruits of the Spirit, the character of God. And let's be honest, these are not the things that our world most values. Our world gravitates towards strength and power and beauty and riches, success. It's easy for us to take the side of the great and mighty, not so easy to take the side of the humble and unimpressive. Jesus was a man of suffering and sickness or sorrow. If we're honest, I doubt this is as appealing to us as strength and success, power and might. Church, it is clear from these verses, as well as it is clear throughout the Bible, that God does not care about outward appearances. He cares about the heart. He sent his beloved son to earth, not clothed with everything that we so value, but with everything that he so values. And church, as God's redeemed people, we should value what he values. And so, brothers and sisters, take time to examine your own heart and ask whether you value what God values, or do you desire what the world values? Do you value humility, or are you attracted to arrogance and power? Do you love it when uh, somebody you follow on social media really makes fun of someone else and, and gets one over on someone else? Do you gravitate to the powerful or the poor? Do you turn away from those who are suffering, or do you reach out with compassion? And friends, these are not just questions for our individual Christian lives. 
But these are questions for our corporate life as a church. And when a church selects its elders and pastors, it should not look for the men who are the best businessmen or who have the the most influence in the community. The church should elect men who model the character of Christ, whether they be baristas or business owners, whether they have little or great influence in the community. The qualification for church elders that we find in the Bible are almost exclusively character qualifications. This is because God does not care about outward appearance. God cares about the heart. And church, if we're following the way of Jesus, we should strive to be free from any sort of class or caste structure in the church. Divide the church in those ways is an evil in the sight of God. We should strive to be free from favoritism. We should seek to equally love and honor the rich and the poor, men and women, Kenyan and Canadian. should also mean that your elders, me and Pastor Ben, should not be put on pedestals. Since we are not a special class of Christian, we are fellow church members first, pastors second, Friends, this is the way of Christ, but it is not the way of the world. And therefore, Jesus was despised and rejected by men. The world despises Jesus in the way of Jesus. It turns away from him. But friends, notice that the true problem is not just that others have despised Jesus. It is that you have despised Jesus. This is how verse 3 ends. He was despised, and we did not value him. Not he was despised, and everyone out there didn't value him. No, he was despised, and we did not value him. It's not just others who have rejected Jesus. You have rejected Jesus. This was the state of all of us prior to our salvation. Now, there are some people who are unafraid to admit that they despise Jesus. I doubt anyone sitting here in this room today is going to say that. So perhaps ask yourself this question instead. Are you appalled by the demands of the Christian life? Jesus says that to be one of his followers, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. He calls you to share in his sufferings. Do you recoil at that idea? Are you willing to follow a Jesus that makes that demand on your life? Or are you only willing to follow a Jesus that promises you an easy path, giving you all your desires, making your life easy? Friends, if you despise the way of Jesus, that is a sign that you despise Jesus himself. But friends, we find these wonderful words in Romans 5.8. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we still despised him, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus came to suffer and die for a people who despised him. He offers forgiveness to all who would turn to him in repentance and faith. Friends, that brings us to the second point of the sermon, the suffering servant. Verses 4 through 9, the suffering servant. 
The, the sad reality reflected in our passage is that Jesus was despised because he suffered. We have despised Jesus because of his suffering, because he seemed lowly and mistreated. And yet the truth is that he suffered for us. We despise the very thing he came to do for us. Look at verse 4. He himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. Well, the sin of this world brings much sorrow and sickness. Our own sin brings much sorrow. And yet Jesus came to comfort those who are acquainted with tragedy and grief. He came to carry the burdens of his people, to suffer those afflictions in our place. And yet, what was the world's judgment of Jesus? What is our own judgment? What was our own judgment prior to salvation? Look at verse 4. That he was suffering at the hands of God for his own sin. That Jesus deserved his suffering. He got what, he, he got what was coming to him. If he was so great, we wondered, then why did he die on the cross? Why did his life end in suffering rather than triumph? The world scoffs at the idea of following such a Savior. But church, let that be a warning for you not to judge according to human standards. How quick we can be to judge others or look down on others who are suffering. We assume that they deserve it. We assume that they are suffering at God's hands for their own wrongdoing. And how quick we are to take pride in our own accomplishments. Believing our own success is only the result of our own wisdom, our own moral purity. God must be pleased with us. We assume that our success is because God is more pleased with us than he is with other people. But again, the Bible reverses our expectations. God's wisdom is greater than our own. Prosperity is not a sure sign of his favor and in fact, the Bible makes it clear that it is often a sign of his judgment. And suffering is not a sure sign of his displeasure. Just consider the story of Job. So church, be careful not to adopt the world's standard of judgment. Friends, Jesus did not suffer for anything that he had done. No, he suffered for you. Jesus did not suffer for anything he had done. He suffered for you, and he suffered for me. Look at verses 5 and 6, and just notice the, the pronouns that Isaiah uses as I read through these verses again. But he, Jesus, was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our, our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus was mocked because we have mocked others. Jesus' back was beaten because we have beaten others. The crown of thorns was placed on Jesus' head because we have ignored his rule and authority. The nails were driven through his hand because we have all chosen to go our own way. Friends, these verses go to the very heart of Christianity. They reveal the very center of the gospel. These verses uncover the very core of the message of salvation that the Bible is all about. They reveal that Jesus suffered and died 
as a substitute in the place of guilty sinners. He suffered to pay God's just penalty for sin. God is just to judge sin. But Jesus paid God's just penalty for sin. And by doing so, he fully atoned for the sins of all Christians past, present, and future. I mean, how clear is it from these verses that sin carried a tremendous penalty? Jesus was pierced, and he was crushed. He was punished. The wages of sin is death, and what happened on the cross? Jesus died. Friends, Jesus fully paid for sin. But friends, Jesus did not die to take sin's penalty for all people, but only for those who repent and believe. Only for those who follow him. Friends, in order for you to be a Christian, for Jesus not to just be a Savior, but your Savior, for that to happen, you must see and believe that Jesus was put on the cross for your sin. You have to believe that he was pierced because of your rebellion. You have to see that he was crushed for your iniquity. You have to see that the wounds in his side and the holes in his hands and his feet, the crown of thorns that was digging into his skull, the marks that he had from the lashes on his back, they are all there because of you. They're all there because of me. They're all there because of you. He took that punishment and he endured that pain for your sake. Friends, when you truly understand that, and I don't mean just like understand it intellectually, but feel it in your heart and believe it in your heart, you will turn from your sins in sorrow. You will be filled with grief because of what Jesus suffered for you. And you will grieve over your sin and you will therefore flee from it. You will turn from it. That is what the Bible calls repentance. You will no longer trust in your own goodness for salvation. I mean, how could you after reading those verses? You will know that you can never be good enough. And instead, you will trust in Jesus alone for salvation. His sacrifice on the cross. You will trust in that alone. Friends, that is what the Bible calls faith. And this is where the gospel reverses all human expectations. Human wisdom says that we need to prove ourselves. We need to show our own strength. We need to show that we can do it. We can make it by fasting for a month. We can make it by praying just enough. But the gospel says that we must humble ourselves and show our weakness. We must admit that we are helpless and that we need someone else to stand in our place. The message of other religions is work hard enough and maybe you will be pleasing to God. Work hard, do your best, try to live a moral life, and hopefully you will be pleasing to God. But Christianity is not like all the other religions of the world. Christianity says that you can never do enough. Instead of proving your strength, you must admit your sin, and you must admit your weakness. Look at the language of verse 6. We have all gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. No one is exempt. Now, that is really the definition of sin. Going your own way, doing your own thing, trying to earn your way to God your own way and in your own strength. We have all gone astray, and we needed the good shepherd to bring us back. 
which, praise be to God, is exactly what he came to do. Notice the end of verse 5. It was his punishment that brought us peace. We are healed by his wounds. A Christian, that verse is not a promise that Jesus' death frees you from all physical sickness or poverty. Or that if you just have enough faith, that you will not get sick anymore. There are many false teachers who will tell you that. Do not listen to them. That is not what these verses are talking about. These verses are speaking about being healed from your sin. I mean, just look through these verses. Look at the end of verse 12. Jesus bore the sins of me. Jesus was punished for your iniquity. It is Jesus' suffering that heals you from your sin. His suffering has purchased your peace with God. He brings reconciliation between God and man. Now, it is true that there is a day when those who have been freed from sin will also be freed from all sickness. But that will not happen in this life, but only the life to come. Church, the wonder of Jesus, the suffering servant, is that he suffered all of this for you. And he suffered all of it willingly. It was his willing and loving choice to go to the cross. Look at verse 7. A lamb is led to slaughter willingly and silently because it does not know where it is going. It has no reason to cry out as it heads to the slaughterhouse or to the shears. Why would it? But Jesus knew he was headed for the cross. And he went willingly, without complaint. And he did this even though he had done no wrong. Again, look at the end of of verse 9. This is one of the verses that Peter quoted. He had done no violence. And he had not spoken deceitfully. Jesus was sinless, and yet he was willingly despised and rejected. He willingly endured the oppression and judgment of unjust authorities who put him to death. He was willingly cut off from the land of the living. He willingly died, not because of his own rebellion, but because of your rebellion. Though he is the eternal Son of God, he willingly endured death. He was assigned a grave right along with all the other wicked men of the earth. Though he did have the honor of being buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. Friends, again, who has believed what we have heard? Who would believe that the innocent would die in the place of the guilty? Who would believe that the God of all glory would come as a humble servant to give his life as a ransom for many? Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. To him be glory forever. Amen. Church, this unexpected and glorious Savior does not just save a people either. He transforms a people. When you repent and you place your faith in this Jesus, you are changed. Those who follow this Savior, who defied the world's expectations... Well, they will no longer be conformed to this world either. They will renounce the ways of the world and they will live in a new way of life. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of the land will be strengthened to endure the suffering of this world without complaining. They will count it all joy when they encounter various trials. When they suffer unjustly, 
They will endure it with patience and gentleness so that God will be glorified. They will not hate their enemies, but they will love their enemies. They will not look to be served, but will sacrificially serve. They will say no to sin instead of trying to take part in the passing pleasures of sin. They will be transformed and no longer live for themselves, but like their Savior, serve others even when it comes at personal cost. Brothers and sisters, the church is to be a people who live in a way that is different from the world. They are to live in a way that defies the wisdom of the world, that does not look like the world around it. But the beauty of this is that to live in this way is far more attractive than anything the world has to offer. It doesn't seem like it all the time, but it is far more attractive than anything the world has to offer. This message is far more attractive than any of the strength and power and success the world can offer. It invites people to come and follow this Savior too. And that is because this new way of life is far more fulfilling than anything the world has to offer. For those of you who are Christians, you know this. Life with Jesus is far more fulfilling than anything this world has to offer. Life with Jesus offers far greater reward, both in this life and certainly in the life to come. It brings us to the third and final point of the sermon, the successful servant. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Though Jesus had done no wrong, notice verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Or as other translations put it, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It is true that Jesus was put to death by the sinful and lawless actions of men. And yet even this was not outside of God's sovereign will. God did not cause the sin of those who crucified Jesus. And yet he was sovereignly over their sin. He was sovereignly over that sin in such a way that he used it to accomplish his purposes. Friends, God frustrates and reverses the plans of men. What men mean for evil, God intends for good. When the world seems in chaos, God is still in control. We'll look at the end of verse 10. By the hand of his servant, the Lord's pleasure or the Lord's will will be accomplished. What did it look like at the end of Jesus' life? It looked like he had failed. But God was at work using Jesus to accomplish his purposes of salvation and his purposes of redemption. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. God was accomplishing his purpose of undoing all that sin had destroyed. Who has believed what we have heard? Church, this should be a great encouragement to you as you pursue the work of the Lord. As you pursue the Christian life, as you seek to follow Jesus, it may feel sometimes that you are laboring in vain. Your work for the Lord may feel insignificant. What possible difference could you make? What possible difference could I make? Who are we? But God loves to work in unexpected ways. He loves to choose what is foolish to shame the wise. He loves to use what is weak to shame the strong. 
He loves to use his lowly and weak and seemingly insignificant saints to accomplish his glorious purposes. Friends, on this side of heaven, you may never see how God is using your small acts of faithfulness, your joy and your patient endurance in trial, your kindness to people who can never repay you, the small seeds of the gospel that you plant. But God uses his weak and insignificant people and their seemingly small deeds to accomplish his glorious purposes. This is the way of God, and it is glorious. Friends, Isaiah again points us to just how God's glorious purposes of salvation were accomplished in Jesus. Look at the end of verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Christian, when God supernaturally saved you, when he, by his grace, led you to repent in sorrow and place your faith in him, two things happened. One, Jesus took your sin. Second, Jesus gave you his righteousness. This is what we just sang about a, a moment ago, that glorious exchange. All of your sin, all of Jesus' grace. All of your sin, for all of Jesus' righteousness. Prior to your salvation, it was like you had a, a huge, unpayable debt in your spiritual bank account. Your account was negative, and so negative that you had no hope of recovery. Uh, that was your sin. But at the moment of, that, of your salvation, that debt was taken out of your account, and it was placed on Jesus instead. At the same time, at the same time that happened, the perfect righteousness and holiness and perfection of Jesus was placed into your account instead. So now, because of Jesus' righteousness, you stand righteous in the, sight of, in the sight of God. When you are united to Jesus by faith, God looks at you not as your sins deserve, but through the perfect righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. This is how you are made acceptable in the sight of God. Not your righteousness. It is not your righteousness that makes you acceptable in the sight of God. It is Jesus' righteousness in your place. And friends, this is the unexpected and glorious news of the gospel. And friends, if you are here and not a Christian, that can happen to you as well. Your sin debt, your burden of guilt, your shame, your wrongdoing it can be placed on Jesus as well. And he will willingly give you his righteousness. He just calls you to repent and believe. And in these closing verses, Isaiah returns to the theme that he began with in Isaiah 52, 13. That the servant would be successful and greatly exalted. And following that verse, everything else that Isaiah has written seems to contradict that statement that we found in Isaiah 52, 13. The one who would be exalted would suffer greatly. He would be despised and rejected. He would seemingly be ashamed. He would die. But like Wilma Rudolph, all of this suffering would lead to unexpected success. Jesus, the one who died for his people, would be raised. The one who endured shame and suffering would be glorified and exalted. The one who sacrificed so much would be greatly rewarded. Friends, God loves to do the unexpected. Notice verse 10. Jesus served as a guilt offering for sinful people. That's what his sacrifice was, a guilt offering for sinful people. 
and therefore all who repent of their sins and place their faith in Him, are transformed from sheep who were going astray, who were going their own way, into children of the King, His offspring. Sheep who are going astray, offspring of the King. Jesus' days that were cut short on earth will be prolonged for all eternity. That is because He did not stay in the grave, but rose again, so that all who place their faith in Him can also prolong their days and have eternal life in Him. And look at verse 12. Therefore, this is the Lord speaking, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. I love how one scholar explains this verse. The servant will return from his mission like a warrior laden with spoil. His weakness will turn to strength, his dishonor to honor, his defeat into victory. The one who was despised and rejected will take the highest place, the place of a conqueror. That is the end of history. Jesus will one day return in all his glory to collect his spoil. And what is this spoil or reward that the servant will be given? It's all his redeemed people. Church, it is you. Rebels have been turned to worshipers. All whom he died to save will be returned to Jesus as a reward. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Church, Jesus died to save you and redeem you and sanctify you and purify you so that you will one day be presented to him holy and without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, without sin. The servant will indeed be successful. He will be high and lifted up and exalted. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, this good news of the gospel is surprising and unexpected. It turns all human wisdom on its head. Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who was so disfigured that people turned away from him, will be exalted, as will all of his people. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Brothers and sisters, let that be an encouragement to you to endure. Sometimes following Jesus makes little earthly sense. It seems far better sometimes to forsake him and take the easy road. But if you endure, you will also reign with him. So lose your life that you might save it. Humble yourself that you might be exalted. Let's pray.